Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science. For each episode, we meet a real-life scientist and get to know what a life in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode, I'm joined by invertebrate zoologist, behavioral ecologist, and master of all things social, <laughs> Tanya Laddy. Tanya, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. No worries. Now, I want to start uh, dark. Oh. I want to ask about the insect apocalypse. <gasps> yes, they we're all going to die because of the insects sort of thing. Well, I, I read one article that says they're all disappearing. I read another article that says that mosquitoes are taking over our cities. Yeah. Uh, what's, what's going on? Are they coming or going? Well, it's a little bit of everything, really. I mean, the biggest problem is that we just don't have good data for long-term insect populations. Mm-hmm. So... I think a lot of us have the sense that insect populations are going down. I mean, we talk about the windscreen effect where, you know, when I was a kid driving around in my car, you'd have to stop all the time and scrape insects off the windscreen. And now you, know, you get one or two dead things, but it just mm. doesn't happen as much. The problem with those kinds of anecdotes is that we don't know whether it's true that the insect population has gone down or, you know, our cars are more aerodynamic or some other factor um, beyond what we observe. And to get at that, we need these good long-term data sets where someone collects the same biodiversity information, like the number of species over a long period of time in the same place. There's not a lot of that. And so we're just kind of grasping at those few studies we have. So there were two last year, I believe, one in Puerto Rico, uh, excuse me, and one in Germany. Uh, Both of them were in protected locations and both showed like catastrophic declines in insects, Mm. up to an 80% decline in insect biomass. That was a worry. And then just a few weeks ago, a study came out that went through the literature and just picked out all these sort of disparate studies in different places where someone had actually done uh, a longer term, five years or more study. Uh, and what they found is of those studies, a large percentage were also showing declines. And this was across a whole bunch of different taxonomic groups. Mm-hmm. That's a worry because it, it does kind of back up that intuition I think a lot of us have that insect populations are going down. The problem is that for the vast, vast, vast majority of insect species of which, I mean, we estimate there's like five million different species of insects, we just don't know. Mm. Um, I don't think that we should wait to act until we know, because by then it's going to be far too late. Um, but it, it is hard. It's hard to say that things are definitely, um, definitely going terribly, but we know something is wrong. I think it's pretty safe to say something is not right, and we really need to do something about it. Mm. So this research is also kind of coming off the back, not too long after all the talk about uh, colony collapse disorder and honeybees mm. disappearing off the planet. Is that all a part of insects in general disappearing? Or, Well, no. I'd say honeybees are quite different. Mm. Um, they're different because they're a managed species. So there are people who look after honeybees. We manage their populations. Yes, colony collapse disorder was happening, and we were getting reductions in uh, the number of colonies, but that wasn't across all places in the world. Some places have perfectly healthy populations. Our honeybees in Australia are thought to be doing quite well. Um, so it's a very different thing. Now, whether or not the same things that cause colony collapse disorder in North America, for example, are the same as the things um, causing collapse in other insects is, is debatable. Mm. I think insecticides are clearly a problem. I mean, insecticides' whole job is to kill insects, so there's like no surprises that if we overuse them and use them in places we shouldn't, we're going to see declines. But then habitat loss and conversion of, say, bushland into urban systems or agricultural systems, I mean, that's probably the biggest driver, and that's a lot more likely to be affecting things, um, non-honeybee species, which... You know, honeybees are living in boxes. It's primarily the managed populations that we track. So they're related, but they're, they are different. I think 
when people come to me freaking out about honeybees, I kind of think, you're, you're sort of worrying about the wrong creatures. <laughs> like, <laughs> honeybees are probably going to be fine. They're essentially the cows of the insect world. They mm. are looked after. Lots of people are trying to protect them. Um, it's all the other stuff that we know so little about that we don't even know whether they're declining yet. So how mm. do we do anything to preserve insect biodiversity if we don't have that knowledge? So I feel like people have kind of stopped talking about colony collapse disorder. Mm. Is it just not hip and trendy anymore, or are we oh, genuinely it, not as worried? I think it's just not happening as much anymore. So mm. colony collapse disorder happened. There was this big rash of lots of winter, overwinter losses and sudden disappearances of honeybees, particularly in North America, but in a few other places as well. Uh, and then it kind of passed. And there have been examples of colony collapse in the past as well. So it's not like it's the first time it happened. I think what we do suspect is that it's getting a little bit harder to manage bees. There's lots of diseases, um, mm. particularly again in North America and Europe where they've got varroa mite. And varroa mite is like the mosquito of the bee world. It vectors all these other diseases which become problems. So places that have varroa, it's a lot more difficult to manage them because now you have to kill the mite to keep your bee populations safe. So it's getting harder. Um, but it's not the case that like bees are disappearing or honeybees mm. anyways are disappearing. I, I'm not worried that honeybees are going to go extinct. So our crops aren't going to disappear because they're not being pollinated? Well, so here's the thing. <laughs> <It's> complicated. <laughs> yeah. Honeybees, probably okay. There are lots of other different pollinating insects. We know a lot less about their contribution, but we do know that at least in some places, it looks like all of those wild pollinators are doing more than the honeybees. Mm. And they're the ones we don't know how to conserve. So... Mm. I, again, I don't think it's like the apocalypse and there's not going to be any food. It's going to be terrible, partly because a lot of our staple crops like potatoes and cassava and wheat, those things aren't insect pollinated anyway. So mm. in the worst case scenario, we'd have those. I do think it's getting harder to get optimal yields, uh, particularly for things like berries, chocolate, which is delicious, but you know it's <laughs> pollinated by a midge we know almost nothing about. So mm. there are all these other pollinators and they are doing important things and we don't have a good sense of how you know, insect declines will affect those things. But I mean, I think in the short term, it could be things like increasing the cost of, of fruit because it's just that much harder to get a big yield because mm. um, we don't have enough pollination. Yeah, it is a bit of a shame that honeybees were sort of portrayed as the pollinator it that is. does all this work. It is. They're kind of, I mean, they're sort of our motto species almost. It's like the one, they're charismatic. People like them. Everybody loves a bee. Um, and so people care about them. And I think in general that's good because at least it gets people thinking about insects. Mm -hmm. The worry is that often I hear people say things like, I've got a honeybee hive to help save the bees. Mm. You're not saving the bees in that scenario. <laughs> um, you're, I guess, saving honeybees, but they don't need saving in the first place. So, you know, I wish we could take a bigger picture kind of perspective and say, I want to save pollinators, so I'm going to plant heaps of flowers on my property. Mm. I'm not going to use insecticides. I'm going to turn my lawn into like a wildflower garden. Those sorts of actions would have a much better impact on pollinators in general. But mm. it's, it's tricky. It's hard to convince people that some insect they've never heard of is really important and worth saving. Yeah, I guess having a, a, you know, a beehive in your backyard is this sort of thing you can point at and go, look at that. Yeah. Look what I did. Look how I helped. Whereas a garden, I don't know. It, it's not as... Hip. <laughs> I mean, that's right. I mean, urban beekeeping right now is taking off. And I think a lot of it is that keeping bees is cool now. So, mm. and that's fine. I, I think that's great. I mean, anybody, anything that gets people interested in insects, I'm, I'm on board. Mm. But we do have to be mindful of the fact that that isn't a good action if your aim is to conserve biodiversity or to help pollinators. 
that's helping one species that is introduced in a lot of places. So in Australia, honeybees are not a native species here. Mm. Uh, they were brought in, and that's true in North America as well. So you know, if you're going to be helping species, you need to help the ones that need help, not, mm. not the ones that are essentially domesticated. So it's and tricky. Are all gardens equal? No, no. If no. you're supporting local native pollinators. No, I think there's a lot of debate about the extent to which you need to have native plants versus introduced plants. I mean, my, my takeaway from the research we've done is that what you need is lots of flowers. It's good to have some natives, but it's also not necessary. Mm. You want things that have high nectar, high pollen yield. You want lots of them and you want variety. And that way, um, especially if you live in a city, then the bees have a few different things. They can sort of make their diet that way. Um, <clears throat> there are a few native species that will only feed on a few native plants, which is why it's good to include them. But I don't want people to get hung up on the idea that oh, I need to only have native flowers. Mm. What you really want to aim for is just continuous flowering for the whole bee season mm. of lots of different things so that your garden always has sort of a bee buffet or a pollinator buffet. Uh, I also say messy is good. So if you want biodiversity <laughs> in your garden, be lazy. <laughs> like, yeah. Let things grow over, leave um, dead wood in piles to make habitat for other things. Uh, it doesn't need to be pristine. In fact, a pristine garden is likely to have less biodiversity than one that's a little bit messy and that you let go a little wild. Mm. You know, letting things like basils and brassicas go to flower, it's wonderful. They, bees love brassicas mm. and basil that's allowed to go into flower. So you know, just be lazy. You don't have to have um, a perfectly manicured garden to support biodiversity. Weeds have flowers and grass yes. has flowers. Lantanas has got tons of flowers. Lantanas <laughs> is super controversial when <laughs> like It's super invasive and does yeah. all sorts of nasty things, but it's got nice hollow stems. So a few of our native bees, like reed bees, love lantana to live in the stems. The, flower, the flowers support heaps of pollinators. So yeah, it's, it's a bit of a judgment call, I guess. I mm. think my feeling is if you're living in a really urbanized city, uh, look, it's already a super altered ecosystem, right? You're not mm. going to be able to go back to it being pristine, even if you make your lawn pristine and native species. So with that in mind, I mean, I think you just aim to support as many insects as you can. Mm. Um, and whether that means planting things that aren't native, you know, as long as you're not introducing a new invasive species, <laughs> um, I think that's fine. It, it's trickier in bushland where it is still kind of native, then we have to think really hard about what we do. Well, for people interested in urban uh, beekeeping or pollinator promoting, you, you just took part in the Great Australian Bee Challenge, which was a, a catalyst initiative. Yeah. Tell us about that. That was super exciting. So um, I got to help co-host this program that was all about, it was all about honeybees primarily, but I think what the catalyst crew were very clever at doing was sort of hanging everything on this reality show challenge about different beekeepers trying to produce honey, but then sneaking in all this really great science. And so mm. there's interviews and segments with researchers from you know, all over sort of the bee world um, mm. talking about their research and kind of introducing little learning tidbits. So mm. it was really good, and it was, it was fantastic to work with them. I thought it was yeah. really, really eye-opening. I had no idea how much filming goes into TV, though. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, it's two hours of TV, but there are, there must be hundreds of hours of tape that didn't make it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all sorts of interviews that didn't manage to fit in, and shots that I guess just didn't work out. So heaps of respect for people who work in TV now. It's, <laughs> it's not an easy job. I mean, how did this come about? This isn't something that you pitch to them or anything no so i was approached by um the producer i might have been must have been about a year ago now mm. um and he had this idea he wanted to do something with bees and just sort of asked 
there's sort of a brainstorming session. Like, what do you think would be interesting about bees? And mm -hmm. we kind of chatted about native bees because I was really like, you got to talk about native bees more. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they kind of went away for a while. And I imagine there was pitching and stuff in the background. And then I was invited to do um, a Facebook Live question and answer session. Like a post, do a little you know, question and answer. You can take questions from people on Facebook. And at the end of that, they said, also, that was a sneaky interview. And <laughs> you did well, so... <laughs> so we're going to stick you on camera. Yeah, so now you can, you can help with this episode. And so from there, it was just um, kind of picking which things they were going to do. And we, as I said, we filmed heaps of segments that didn't end up going into it. Mm. Um, and it was, it was fantastic. It was really fun. It was a lot of time. <laughs> did you have much say in what went into it? Because I imagine people have... People would go into these sort of mm. things with a conception of what they want to see, which might not match the science. Yeah, so I, again, I found the Catalyst, I think because they work in science mm. TV, they were very mindful of trying to keep things as accurate as they could. So they would often ask experts if they weren't sure about something. Um, and they certainly asked us, you know, there wasn't a script per se off, and it would be like, talk about this subject. And I would mm. just talk for a while, and they'd go, okay, can you shorten that? <laughs> Speak a little slower, <laughs> you know? Um, so I, I didn't have any input on sort of the creative direction, um, but I mean that's not my job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would I wouldn't know. I I suspect that a show that was made the way I would like to see it, nobody would watch. Yeah. <laughs> it would be a lot of trivia and people like, ah, oh, it's really boring. So I mean they have that creative team of people mm. who know how to pitch things to a broad public audience. Uh, and I think they I think they did a good job. Yeah. I was really I was happy with it in the end. I thought it was great to see because lots of uh, public-facing science lately, I feel like, is more and more just space and physics and engineering yeah. and stuff. So to see things on you know, urban biodiversity and stuff was, was great. Yeah, it's, I'm not sure why biodiversity stuff feels like it's kind of fallen out of social media, or well, just media in general at the mm. moment. Um, I think you're right that a lot of the stories are like, space, something cool happening yeah. in space and medicine and nanotech. And the ecology side of stuff really gets lost. Mm. We just don't talk about um, ecology, which is why it was so exciting, I mean, dark, but exciting to see all those insect decline stories really taking off. Mm. So, I mean, my only concern is it's a bit of a shame that so many of them went with the, you know, 100% insect extinctions by the end of the century. <laughs> and like, we're all going to die. Because, I mean, that's not, we're not, I mean, we're all going to die eventually. But, you know, <laughs> there's... There's so much space between like everything is okay and the world is ending, right? Yeah. It doesn't have to be one or the other. There's there's all this other stuff. There could be, you know, things are going to get a little bit worse, uh, maybe a lot worse. And to act like it's either the apocalypse or everything's fine just gives people this really false sense that either it's okay or there's no hope and why bother doing anything. Mm. And that's not the message. The message should be that, no, we have a lot of stuff left to save. Uh, we can save it. It's not like the technology or the know-how to save things isn't there. We just have to act. Like we just have to care. Like it's mm. the, the biggest thing is that we need to care. And that they have this idea that we just don't know about most insects. It's a it's a hard message for a journalist to make hot and sexy. It <laughs> is. I mean, it's a hard message for me to deliver, even to my my teaching, my classes. Like, mm. well, you know, what do we know about insects? Well, actually, almost nothing. <laughs> We're not even sure how many of them there are. We we just don't know about the ecology and the behavior and the conservation status of most things. And 
I mean, that is hard. I mean, what, what do you do in that situation? I mean, we kind of have to act with partial information um, rather than being able to get, you know, specific information like we can with things like elephants and dolphins mm-hmm. and big things that we can see and track and do all this information and we know everything about them. Well, not everything. We know a lot more about them mm-hmm. than we do about, you know, most of our native bees. Now, speaking of urban biodiversity, we're here in Sydney, so you're, you're an urban gal. Yep. Are you keeping your own pollinator gardens or keeping your own beehives? Or? Yep. I, I, have a st- I usually foster a stingless beehive because we have a okay. bunch of research stingless bees. So I, I have a very, very small courtyard, so, <laughs> so I can't really have honeybees. And yeah. I kind of like keeping the stingless bees, which are native anyway. Um, my garden is definitely messy, so I've embraced that philosophy Good. of keeping it very messy. <laughs> that was totally on purpose, right? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Just for biodiversity <laughs> and not because lazy. Um, and yeah, I, I purposely plant things that I know bees and other pollinators will like. So we've got big patches of flowering perennial basil because it's always got a flower on it. And the bees, blue bandits in particular, love it. Mm. Um, hoverflies love it. Uh, I've got big patches of salvias wherever I can. And I plant brassicas like mustard and broccoli and a few others and just let them go to flower as bee forage so mm. um yeah you do try to keep it in a way that the bees would like and, and it seems to have paid off i mean my courtyard's tiny but i get lots of different bees showing up i get lots of blue bandits, lots of hoverflies a few different types of resin bee i've seen reed bees around there so mm. um i mean one of the the big things i think our research and others have found is that even if you're in the inner city there are probably native bees around, mm. uh, you just have to plant the right things and they tend to rock up. So it's not like, oh, I live in concrete jungle, I'm never going to be able to do anything for biodiversity. You can. Mm. You just need to plant things and the bees are there. Yeah, The bees are there. And I, I think there are also um, some evidence to suggest that cities can be hotspots for bees mm. um, in terms of their population sizes because of the floral diversity. We have flowers blooming all year round in the city because people plant gardens, mm. um, much more so than in the bush where it can be a bit more boom and bust. Gums are flowering, great. They're not, uh-oh, mm. not much else. So in that sense, it's good. Um, compared to agricultural lands, people in cities tend to use much lower insecticides in their gardens yeah, yeah. compared to like a, you know, a production environment. So that's also helpful. Mm. So now I think for city people, yeah, you can help save biodiversity you don't you don't have to live in a rural area and have a huge property yeah um, any, any little bit helps and i don't know I, I, i've heard a lot that actually keeping a native beehive is a really tricky but um, it's not necessarily the goal you just give them places to feed yeah i mean it depends which bees you're after so the social stingless bees um, they're not super tricky to keep, although it does depend a little on where you are. Sydney is at the very, is getting towards the end of the range for Tetragonula carbonaria, which is mm-hmm. the stingless bee most people are keeping, uh, which means they do struggle a bit over winter. So uh, having said that, you can keep, people have kept colonies for long periods of time. You just have to pay attention to making sure they're in a place where they get sun um, so they warm up during the, the winter. Uh, otherwise, they're usually fine. I mean, once you have one, they more or less manage themselves other than you split the colony every couple of years, and it's fine. Mm. Uh, but then there's the solitary bees, of which you know, the vast majority of our native bees are solitary. So you get one bee living by herself with her offspring um, in, say, a hole in some wood or uh, in a hollow stem, or a lot of them just nest in the ground. So you can do things to make your, to make your garden more habitable to those mm. Um, you'll see lots of bee hotels. They're super popular right now. Like they're usually blocks of wood with holes drilled in them and mm. pine cones and tubes. Those are good-ish. <laughs> um, I'm a little skeptical of them, partly because 
we, I mean, you're essentially forcing a really high density living situation for bees when you build these. Mm. If you have a big bee wall, that's at a lot higher density than would normally be the case. And it's been observed, although not particularly well documented uh, formally, that you tend to get lots of parasitoid wasps coming in as well. So parasitoids are awesome and totally (laughs) a natural part of the environment. But the risk is if you're creating this like super signal, like all these bee smells, then you might be concentrating the parasitoids to a point that you're getting a much higher parasitism and disease rate than you would. Mm. In a natural population, that, that would be a worry. Um, it's something we've tried to experiment on, but haven't had heaps of luck yet. Mm. <laughs> it's just it's kind of a hard thing to study properly. Um, but in the interim, I'd say if you're going to use a bee hotel, try to have one that doesn't have you know heaps and heaps of holes in it. Um, I'd say you're better to have lots of small bee hotels rather than one like mega bee hotel. Uh, and do think about just you know regular environmental things. Like if you have some bare earth, that's great. Mm. Um, native bees have a hard time going through mulch, so if there's parts of your garden where you're okay just not mulching them that's going to provide some habitat. Um, planting things that have naturally hollow stems. I mean, lantana is an example that's like, eh, should you bother with lantana? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there's hollow stem natives you could plant as well. Grapevines um, tend to have hollow, pithy stems. So just trying to, to kind of make it, again, messy so that there's nesting habitat for, for things to live if they want to. Now, these are all the critters you can keep at home, but we're here recording this Right next to your lab, the University of Sydney. So what sort of critters are you keeping here in the lab? Oh, well, so we've got, we've got two different species of stick insect, mm-hmm. uh, we, spiny leaf insects. And when we haven't, we're not sure what species it is, but it looks legit like a stick. <laughs> <laughs> Funny, that. <laughs> I know. If you don't know there's insects, and I love saying, oh, look at my animals, and people just stare at them, and you know, there's nothing in there. Yeah. There's like 30 stick insects in there. <laughs> but they're so incredibly good at looking like a stick that you'd never see them. Uh, we keep those for outreach activities for schools. We're not actually studying them for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, we have soldier fly maggots at the moment because we're studying how they convert waste. So things like chicken poo or uh, even household scraps. Um, they'll eat pretty much everything. They're just incredible. Uh, and then they convert that into high-quality protein. So then you can feed the larva back to, say, the chooks or to whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a way of kind of creating this circular system where your waste feeds livestock food which feeds your livestock that get fed off of the waste and kind of it, it serves two purposes there mm. so that's cool we've got those in the lab and they're they're great fun uh we've got what else have we got right now blants because i like blants <laughs> and, and they're angry and hate everybody it's just fun to keep them around there they're pretty much just pets but the most exciting thing i think we have now are velvet worms oh, wow. so we've, we've just got an honors project starting on velvet worm behavior and group hunting and they are adorable little animals. I mean, they're not yeah. insects. They're onychophorans, um, which is sort of a sister group to the arthropods. So they're not quite an arthropod, but, you know, they're... Um, well, my honor student called them invertebrate, or invertebrate dinosaurs. So they're, <laughs> they haven't changed in a long time. Like, the fossil onychophorans from 400 million years ago look pretty much like the ones yeah. we have now. So they're this cool sort of ancient group. But they're, and they're very cute. They're kind of fuzzy and velvety, and they've got these cute little stumpy legs but they're like hardcore predators. <laughs> you never see it coming. Uh, and they hunt by shooting glue mm. from these two nozzles by the sides of their head. And the glue sticks to the prey. Then they kind of sneak up on it and tear it apart with this crazy sickle-shaped mouth part. <laughs> and, then, and then they inject it with their mouth parts with this sort of digestive enzymes that melt the inside of their prey and kill it and then make it into like a Slurpee. And then they slurp <laughs> that all out. I mean, it's just, it's fantastic. <laughs> But they group hunt? Well, so here's the thing. There's one paper, one paper ever, that suggested that there's this one species 
that seems to live collectively. So you tend to find them in little little groups. I've been calling them velvet worm cuddles because I think that's the best collective name. <laughs> For velvet like, worms, good, yeah. yeah. It's like a cuddle of velvet worms. <laughs> They're so cute. They're all snuggly. But then they did a few experiments where they would put uh, the velvet worms in a Petri dish and then put a cricket in. And what they were observing is that the bigger ones would kind of go after the prey looked like almost together, um, or at least they'd be shooting at the same time. And then the, uh, they would start eating, and then the smaller ones would kind of come in afterwards, like... Uh, and there were dominance hierarchies where there was like a dominant big one and a you know, subordinate small one, which I think is amazing. It's a really mm. cool study. But the problem is there's only one of it. Like it's mm. never been replicated as far as I can tell. Uh, and the other problem is it was done in a fairly small Petri dish, which mm. is a very unnatural environment for velvet worms. So it's not clear whether they just sort of tolerate each other's preference and they both kind of all shoot glue because they all see the same food item, mm. or whether there actually is coordinated social hunting with division, you know, some individuals attacking and some individuals scavenging. And we don't know where on the spectrum of sociality they actually fall. And so what we're trying to do now is just get those details. So using that study as kind of a starting point, we're trying to give them more naturalistic environments mm. and really drilling down to see, like, are they really social hunters like wolves or are they more just, you know, we're all hanging out, we're okay with one another, but we're not mm. really sharing our food and we don't know where they're going to fall out. And you know nothing about whether this is a, a family group or just individuals that lump together? No, we don't. So there, there seems to be suggestions in the literature that they're probably related because they don't seem to have a whole lot of dispersal ability. They, they can disperse, but... They live inside rotten logs. Hmm. They seem to have no way of preventing desiccation. <laughs> like, as soon as it gets remotely dry, they just shrivel up. Like They're hmm. really bad at water balance, which means it's really dangerous for them to leave that log and disperse to a new log. Hmm. Uh, we know that they do because there have been experiments where they put out you know, nice rotting logs and then velvet worms show up. Usually males, interestingly, show up um, within a couple of months. So there's clearly some dispersal, but we think that by and large, they just stay in their group, which would probably make them related. Mm. But yeah, we don't know. We don't know. Well, a common theme through all the things mm. you're seem to be working on is that they are group living or social. Yeah. It, is there, why, why bother? Why be- <laughs> <laughs> what is the point of yeah. it all? <laughs> well, I've wasted my life. Thank you for pointing it out. No. <laughs> Uh, that's a very uh, simple question for a very complicated answer, but yeah, I mean, I think I mean there's a couple of reasons. So on the hey stuff is interesting side, sociality is super interesting. Yeah. We're social, like we're very social animals, but there's this whole spectrum of sociality out there from things like bees, where you have one individual who reproduces, and then all these other individuals who sacrificed reproduction to raise their to raise their kin. That's cool. How does something like that evolve? Um, that's interesting. But then on the other end, I think there are actual useful air quotes reasons to do it. Um, one is conservation. We know that social species, one of the problems with them is things can be ticking along quite well. Uh, and you can remove individuals for a while, but then you kind of go off a cliff when you get below the whatever population size is needed to maintain those social behaviors. Mm. Uh, and that can run the risk that if you're just going and doing biodiversity surveys, you might be thinking, oh, well, it's fine. We're losing a few, but things should be good because we still have a big population. But the reality is the effective population size, the population size you need to keep going, is a lot um, higher than you think it is. So mm-hmm. uh, good examples are like the passenger pigeons from North America. You see those pictures of people like standing on mountains of dead birds because 
that used to darken the sky and you could just shoot up and things would fall out. Mm. Um, but they kind of went extinct faster, I think, than people predicted. And one of the suggestions is that they had um, social mating systems. And so mm. once you get below a certain number, they don't have the numbers to maintain that and things fall apart very quickly. Mm. Um, the cod stalks off Canada are thought to be similar. They may have had social behaviors we didn't know about and that caused them to go extinct faster than we thought and made it much harder for them to come back. So mm. I think understanding... Uh, how social sociality influence conservation is important. Um, for the more social things, I'm also really interested in trying to understand how you can have animals like ants that have relatively tiny brains. They're not super smart, but collectively they're doing all of these fantastic things. They're solving mm. problems that no individual ant can do, but collectively it works. I mean, that, that's kind of what we want for our, our future systems. Like, you hear about the Internet of Things where you're going to have all these <laughs> devices communicating and running your life, and it's going to be great. Uh, you think about um, driverless cars that are going to be networked with one another and that can kind of cooperate to make sure everybody is getting good travel times across the system. Like, that's all fine and good, but humans don't really think in that decentralized way. We're very hierarchical by nature. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think if we're going to be building systems like that, where you can have all sorts of unintended consequences of um, collective behavior, like why not look at the systems that have been doing collective behavior for millennia? You know, mm -hmm. The ones that have evolved really good mechanisms to deal with, say, uh, um, disruptions or changes in collective systems. And you know, maybe by looking at how those systems are organized, we can take... Uh, inspiration and then apply that to this new sort of decentralized infrastructure systems that we're currently building before we really know, before we really understand how they work. So is it about looking at how, say, entire colonies make decisions yeah. or how individuals within a colony make decisions that eventually turn into a group decision type of yeah, thing? Yeah, it's about working out the behavioral mechanisms behind those big collective choices because mm. it, at the heart of those collective decisions are individuals that are making lots of small decisions with potentially limited cognitive abilities. Mm. But somehow you scale that up and all of a sudden they're doing very smart looking things as a group. And yeah. so hey, I think there's a good analogy there between, um, say, driverless cars. Your driverless car is probably not going to be super smart. Right? <laughs> it's going to have limited sensory abilities and limited um, processing power, but it's going to be able to talk to all the other cars. So mm. collectively we want them to be able to do things. And I think that's very similar to what we see in things like ants and honeybees, where individuals aren't super clever. Uh, I mean, bees are surprisingly clever, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> but collectively, they're doing very interesting things. So, mm. yeah, and so I work a lot with um, civil engineers and computer scientists and mathematicians to try to, to make that a reality, to say, what can we take away from studying ants that we could then use when we're managing driverless car systems or... Um, managing information flows over telecommunication networks or all of these other mm. big decentralized systems. So were you all for driverless cars and things like that? Yes, yeah. because I hate driving. Okay. <laughs> I hate driving. I haven't driven in 10 years. I've got a driver's okay. license I never use. I love the idea that I could get into a car and it would just drive me to where I want to go. You know, driverless cars, there'll be some time where they're sorting out bugs, but eventually they're not going to get tired like humans mm. do. They're not going to get distracted. They're not going to be angry. Uh, and I think a lot of the accidents on, I mean, there's good statistics to suggest a lot of the accidents we have are human error. Mm -hmm. We make mistakes, which is fine. And I think the driverless cars will make less. Mm -hmm. uh, I was really lucky a couple of years ago to go to this um, intelligent transportation systems conference. 
Um, so it was all about driverless cars and systems and things. And I got to ride in a driverless Tesla, oh. and it was amazing. It wasn't terrifying and no, weird? No, it was so cool. I mean, the guy's driving, and he's like, okay, we're switching to automated mode. And he just lets go of the steering wheel, and the car just drives itself. And someone actually walked in front of it, unplanned, I suspect. Because they're just like, <laughs> what? Car, car. And the car just stopped and let the person go, and then went up again. No one had to touch the brakes. It just, it just did it. Mm. It was really cool. Um, I think the other thing that is important with driverless cars is that because they can communicate, if there is a glitch, like if one car makes a mistake, as soon as that glitch gets fixed, it gets spread to all the cars. I mean, mm. people don't do that. We don't learn because somebody made a mistake, all of a sudden immediately have the solution and learn how to avoid that mistake. The cars will be able to do that. So, yeah, I think in the long term, it's going to be fantastic. Um, but we, we have to get there first. And there's going to be an awkward period where we're sort of learning how to go from individual drivers to um, automate. I think that's where the danger zone really is. Mm. I mean, the engineers I spoke to said that their biggest concern or one of their big concerns is how to let the driver remind the driver when they're in charge and when they're not. Mm. Because if you're switching between automated and U mode, it's entirely possible that you're like in semi-automated mode and you're just like not really paying attention because you don't think you're in charge, but mm. you are. So yeah. there have to be like really clear handover systems. Like, okay, now my car is in charge, so I'm backing off. Yeah. Okay, now I have to drive, so I need to be paying attention. Um, the car I drove in had retina or was tracking eye movements. <laughs> so, so if you looked away from the road for more than a second, it would vibrate the wheel to kind of remind you to pay attention. Uh, and if you consistently weren't looking away, it would just pull over. Mm. So it's like, no, nah, you're not driving anymore. You're not paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know that stuff. That's the step beyond the stuff you're mm, working on. Yeah. Did you get the gist that it's... Here, are they aiming for entire roads full of self-driving cars or are we expecting a nice mix of self-driving and, and, I don't know, man-powered acoustic cars, whatever we call them. <laughs> uh, I asked one of the engineers, like, what do you think, how, how long is it going to be before I have my fully automated car so I don't mm. have to drive? Uh, and his response is that you won't remember the moment things became fully automated. That was his mm. prediction that automation is just going to keep creeping in. And my, I mean, my parents' car already has lane control, where if you get out of the lane, it just yeah. sort of puts itself back in. Uh, there's already adaptive cruise control. And his thought was that it was just going to keep going until eventually, you know, you, one day you realize your car is driving itself. But, you know, there may not be a hard moment where everything switches over. Yeah. Um, and it'll be a long time before the whole fleet goes driverless anyway, because mm. people hang on to their cars. There will always be people who just want to drive because yeah. they like driving. Um, so I'm, it'll I'm be a definitely while. one of them. And I don't know, I feel like I'm on the other side of the, the <laughs> spectrum for this because I had a rental car a while mm. ago that had all the fancy bells yeah. and whistles of keeping you in the lane and all sorts of weird beeps and I didn't like it yeah it, it, it wigged me out <laughs> well this is it I think that in-between zone I feel is the most awkward because it's like yeah. you're kind of driving but then sometimes it just starts taking over the steering wheel yeah. like that is I think that's kind of the danger mix because it was very it's disconcerting because I didn't I knew I was supposed to be in charge of this car but I didn't feel like I was yeah yeah, and that's there were the certain thing. corners that I would be taking, and I it would, I would just suddenly hit me where I'd go, I'm actually not driving this car. Yeah, like my car is trying to drive itself. Yeah. And, <laughs> no, I mean, and this is the thing. I guess on the other, other side, though, we've got a massively aging population, and mm. you know, having the mobility to be able to go where you want in your car is so important for, yeah. as you get older. Um, this kind of is a, a workaround, so it can assist a person who may not be able to fully drive anymore. Mm. Um, the car just drives itself, or it mostly drives itself. I mean, those kinds of things, or it helps you avoid accidents when maybe, yeah. you know, 
you're not able to drive as well as you could. So I think from a mobility perspective, for lots of people, it'll be great. And then for lazy people like me, you just hate driving. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> well, the university that I am at is now trialing a driverless bus. It goes around the campus. And it's, it's I mean, it's great. It's mm-hmm. impressive. It's not popular. Oh, uh, really? It goes about 20 k's an hour. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's kind of public enemy number one around town. But yeah. I'm sure it'll get better. Well, it's, I think there's a lot of legislation as well where it's like... Um, you're just not allowed to have a car go fast. Yeah. So because of that, you know, they end up going really slow, but then it's like super annoying because they're going really slow. Yeah. Well, we will maybe do this again and, and check in in a couple of years' time yeah. and see if we're all driving <laughs> uh, driverless cars or sitting in driverless cars and yeah. not driving them. It's like ant-powered <laughs> algorithms. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're just going to have to start naming the cars, the, the, the Mermesia, Toyota Mermesia, something, I don't know. <laughs> oh, I would buy that. <laughs> totally buy that. <laughs> Well, if people want to find out more about your work, you have a lab website? We do. It's www.tanyalatty.com, so Tanya Laddie. Otherwise, if you just Google my name, there's not so many Tanya Laddies in the yeah. world. I'll come up on the first couple of hits, and you can kind of find your way that way. Uh, I do tweet from time to time, so it's at Tanya Laddie on Twitter. Uh, we have an Instagram hashtag, which is hashtag Laddie Lab. And we have a Facebook page, which is the Invertebrate Behavioral, yeah, the Invertebrate Behavior and Ecology Lab, yeah. um, which is sufficiently vague because we just study all the invertebrate things. And if people want to put a face to your voice, they mm-hmm. can check out the latest series of Catalyst. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I'll be the one doing the bee dance. Okay. You missed that bit. You have to go watch it. <laughs> well, thanks so much for yeah. sitting and chatting with me. No problem. Thank you for having me. No worries. And thank you guys for listening. You can check us out at inscituscience.com or we're at inscituscience on social media. Thanks again for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye.